Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and this third episode of Chef-Demony features an early morning interview with a lawyer in a coffee shop and a late afternoon interview with a chef in another coffee shop. Let's get this highly caffeinated episode started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef-Demony. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. On today's episode, I speak to two people with very interesting takes on the food scene in Vancouver and beyond. First up is Andrea Rasmussen, who's a lawyer in the Vancouver suburb of Surrey, BC, and someone I met through a mutual lawyer friend. In addition to helping her clients with business law, including some clients in the restaurant industry, Andrea is passionate about food and wine herself. She worked in the industry as a server and bartender, both before and after law school, and Andrea has studied wine formally, having completed the first two courses in the International Sommelier Guild program. And beyond her formal education is Andrea's infectious enthusiasm for the way food can bring people together, from restaurant outings to dining and dancing in a field in the Italian countryside, to a social event very dear to her heart, the classic dinner party. Andrea is one of those people you just feel good talking to from the very beginning, and it was great to share a coffee and some food talk with her. Next up is my friend Jacob Deacon Evans. Jacob is an extremely talented yet very down-to-earth and friendly chef I've known since my early days at Bishop's. He's lived and cooked in both England and Canada, and I've kept tabs on Jacob's Vancouver career for the better part of a decade now. To me, Jacob represents the best things of the culinary craft. Dedication, enthusiasm, plain hard work, and more than any other chef I know, an abiding interest in the history of chefs and cooking. To this day, Jacob remains the only person ever to have lent me a book on a 19th century chef that he figured I might like to know about, and he was right. Like Andrea Carlson of Burdock & Co., Jacob has consistently helped me over the years, going above and beyond as a mentor and as a willing volunteer at charity dinners I organize from time to time. And speaking of Andrea, Jacob has some great memories of working with Andrea at Bishop's, an experience he found at times confusing, but also incredibly rewarding. These days, Jacob is the chef partner of Vancouver's Nemesis Coffee. Jacob loves cafes, from North Africa to Paris to American diners, and it shows in the menu at Nemesis. I'll be speaking to Jacob shortly, but first to Bosa Foods in East Vancouver, and here's my interview with Andrea Rasmussen. Well, here we are at Bosa Foods on a beautiful Saturday morning. Bosa is on Kootenay Street in East Vancouver, just on the border of Burnaby wonderful Italian grocery store and a great little coffee shop and I'm sitting upstairs at the coffee shop with Andrea Rasmussen. Andrea is a lawyer in Surrey, BC and so she's going to cover the uh, lawyer interview part of the show for us today. Andrea, thank you for joining me and thanks for being on Chef-Demony. Thank you very much for having me. Let's go through a little bit of the background. You're a partner at Wilson Rasmussen in Surrey, and I take it your practice is mainly in the corporate commercial area or or what people would call business law. That's right. Our firm is a a purely solicitor's firm, so we don't have any litigators at our office. I always tell my clients we're lovers, not fighters. But my business law clients are fascinating people, mostly small businesses. A lot of my clients are restaurant owners, not always successful. Competitive industry, unfortunately. And the tendency to want to run a restaurant is very much emotional, I think. Yes. Of course, if you're a skilled chef, even if you're very, very talented, the margins are so narrow 
I wonder if one of the things, and I see this in many industries, law and cooking, of course, but people, I think, get into something, sometimes, a business out of passion, and you might be very interested in the practice of law, or in being a chef, or in being a mechanic, or whatever it is, but as soon as you open a business, you've got a thousand other jobs, your HR, you've got to do the website, you've got employees and withholding tax, and do you sometimes see people perhaps getting overwhelmed with the administrative side? Absolutely, and they'll tell you that. You know, lawyers will tell you that as well when they're they're off on their own trying to set up their own practice. Having an infrastructure already in place is sometimes quite nice. Let's go back to earlier days, and I want to talk about some. I want you to talk about some experience that you've had in the culinary industry. Mm-hmm. And when we were chatting earlier, I learned that we have a connection beyond law and beyond food, and that's that we both grew up in northwestern Ontario. Yes, uh, I was in Thunder Bay, and you were a little west of me in Kenora. So can you tell the listeners, please, and I understand Kenora is where you got your start working in the culinary industry, so please tell us about that experience. Well, there weren't, weren't a lot of restaurants in Kenora at the time, I think. The population was about 10,000 people. So it's not a large town. It's not a culturally diverse place. So there's not a lot of ethnic restaurants. There's not a lot of access to interesting produce. Being a northern place, I, I don't know if you recall this from when you were growing up, but in Kenora at least, and I imagine it would have been the same in Thunder Bay, seafood was all frozen. Right, right. right. There was yep. nothing fresh ever except for lake fish. That's right. um, which was sourced locally and mostly eaten at home, not in right, restaurants. Right. So Sourced locally and usually by going out to catch it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so the restaurant that I started work in was actually connected to a Best Western hotel. It wasn't super fancy, but it was a nice restaurant in town. And there was a chef that was from away that had been brought in. He was brown-skinned and quite exotic and knew what he was doing. So I got to do and see a little bit of that, but mostly my work as a young woman in a town that size was as a server. So when I moved to BC, it would have been 1986, I was acting professionally and I had a job at a in a bar in a racket club. It was a racket clubs were big then in the mid 80s. So that's when I started to work more in bars than in restaurants. And later, after law school actually, I worked for Rossini's. Did you ever know Rossini's? I remember, yes. Was Rossini's down on U Street? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. right right at the foot of U yes. Street, yes. above Kitts Beach. And it was really a popular place because of the music that was played right. there. It was a jazz, kind of a jazz place. And it was also an Italian restaurant and a bar. And I bartended there as well. Can you comment, I've noticed what seem to me to be patterns or similarities between the practice of law and cooking in some ways. I'm curious if you saw any similarities, whether in as simple as the hours demands, different kinds of stress, different kinds of fun, how you bond with other employees, anything like that. Yeah, I think that our work lives are such a large part of our lives um, that often the the culture that you create in your workplace and the friends that you make in your workplace end up being so important to you. And restaurants are totally that way. That was your life. That was your social circle. And the working hours are part of that, for sure. You're working super long hours. You're hanging around with each other after work. And law firms are much like that. And together all the time, you're together more than you are with your families and friends, right? Well, it's interesting. We're meeting today because of a mutual friend. Our friend Carolyn 
who worked with you in earlier days and more recently with me, and there's another connection and, and the reason we're here. Yes. Yeah. Carolyn just recently gave me a gift, a fantastic gift actually, and on topic, because it was a, it's a, just a dishcloth, but it says, it has printing on it, and it says, a relationship is just two people asking each other what they want to eat until one of them dies. <laughs> I love it. That that's perfect. One other question on this topic is, and it's again similarity between law and cooking, for whatever reason, both of these careers seem to be glamorized. And I think of television in particular. So many shows on celebrity chefs and oh, so many shows on lawyers, fictional mm. lawyers. It's always amused me, I guess, the disconnect between the TV show and, and the reality, and, and the reality of it. Of it. Mm. And I wonder if you just have any thoughts on that disconnect. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I have friends who think I'm a good cook. And so they automatically assume that I want to open a restaurant or I should be a chef. And that goes back to that idea that it's romantic to throw the dinner party all the time. It is lovely to throw a dinner party, but to do it for a living is a completely different thing. And that's what people think being a chef is. They think, oh, you're going to throw a constant dinner party. Well, no, you're going to work 24 hours a day. You are going to have to spend your lifeblood on a lot of that admin stuff that's just frustrating and has nothing to do with cooking and nothing to do with the creativity around cooking. Andrea and I spoke about how she engages with her love of food and wine as a busy lawyer. Beyond dinner parties, Andrea and I share a love for food and travel. Highlights for Andrea include New Orleans, Mexico, and shopping the markets in Paris. Then I discovered that Andrea and I share another experience, taking some time away from the practice of law and the food experiences we had during those times. Here's Andrea talking about some of the time that she spent in Italy. One of the most magical food times for me was in the late 90s when I took a break from law and my husband and I went overseas and I, we lived in Turkey for a year, we lived in Greece for a year, and we spent a couple of summers in this little tiny town between Rome and Naples called Campo de Mel. And it's actually my legal secretary's hometown. Oh, wow. So her parents are from there. And we spent two summers living in this old stone house in this village. And one of the, this was a cooking experience initially, we invited a whole bunch of very nice people from the town to come and have lunch with us at our house. The people that came to my house for lunch that day included the town bachelor. There was one guy, and he was an amazing cook. He cooked for us in the mountains around that town. We would go for picnics with him and he would cook giant pots of, you know, spaghetti vongole and that kind of thing. We were very honored that he actually came to our house for lunch because he had never gone to anybody's house for lunch before. But he didn't know how to say no to us. He didn't speak a lot of English. And as a thank you, I mean, I'm not patting myself on the back that my meal was terrific. I think it was okay. It met their standards. They were very kind. But he paid us back by taking us to a restaurant in the middle of a field, in the middle of nowhere, and we were literally the only people there, and he knew the owners. He didn't speak any English, and we spoke very little Italian, but it didn't matter. It was probably the best day of my life. Like, we ate what he wanted us to eat, so he ordered. Some of it was kind of obscure, not what we would normally have as Italian food in Canada. It was obscure food, it was super local, it was super interesting. We drank wine, we ended up dancing together in a field. Like, 
it was wild. And you look back on that, it was like living in a movie. But again, it's that connection between people and food. Like you end up making the best friends through food. Andrea, can you talk a little bit about education? Because I know you've studied wine mm-hmm. um, formally and what that's brought to your life and your appreciation of food and wine. <laughs> well, again, going back in time a little bit, I think the wine when I was a young woman just starting at university, and of course as a Canadian, drinking is part of university, I recall buying giant bottles of fizzy kind of pop-like wine, and I was quite proud at the time that I could drink a whole one through the course of a night, and that was my party drink. It was appalling and sugary, so I knew nothing about wine as a young person, and gradually, again through this dinner party socializing that happened in my life, The wine got better and more interesting, and I think there was more wine being imported into Canada as my generation turned into a bunch of winos. It wasn't until the 2000s that I actually studied something about wine. I'd always loved it. I had a girlfriend who wanted to start taking that sommelier course, so we we would go after work once a week. So I've done the first two levels of the International Sommelier Guild. And what I loved about it from the first class was the fact that the woman who was teaching us, who's quite a prominent sommelier in the city, loves wine. I think people have this expectation still that people who are knowledgeable about wine are going to be judgmental or snotty about it. And she just... What I loved about her and what I loved about the program was that there was none of that. Like it's, if you love wine, you love all wine. And as a sommelier, as someone who's being trained, and I'm not a sommelier yet, but if if I were the sommeliers that I've been trained by, there's no, I like this or I prefer that. It's all wine is good. And I think for the novice wine drinker, there's a tendency to stick with what you know And that's understandable. Wine can be very expensive. And so I'm not going to go out, I'm not going to buy copious quantities of wines that I know nothing about because, I I mean, who can afford to do that? But when do you get to taste? When do you get to compare? I also like the way in which professionals taste wine, that taking it from the lightest to the heaviest. And I love that ability to compare and how they taste in comparison to each other. And you can't do that alone in your own home. You have to do that out in the world. You have to do that at a tasting. You have to do that in a course. Because, again, you're never going to open all those bottles at the same time, not to taste them properly in any event. In the dinner party scene, you're more likely to drink two or three bottles in succession, but you're not going to compare the tastes at the table, typically, one against the other. Again, it's not to choose one and say one is better than the other, but to compare the flavors. It's the best way to do it. After our discussion on wine, I had to ask Andrea for her thoughts on places to eat in and around Vancouver, and particularly in Surrey, where her practice is. Andrea mentioned Surrey is great for ethnic foods and how it has fantastic Indian restaurants. And then she came to a spot in South Surrey that she really likes for both the food and the wine. Well, Andrea, just one final question, which is, you've mentioned the Mackenzie Room, and um, we were talking about Burdock and Nemesis. Any other places that you would direct listeners to, and perhaps in Surrey, where you're working, or Vancouver, 
anywhere that I may not have heard of that you think I should check out? There's a lovely place in South Surrey. I've only been there once, but it's very well known in the community. It's called Tap. And there's a fabulous guy that's a chef there, and he's very wine knowledgeable as well. I've been there once, and he introduced me to wine that I hadn't had before. And I have a sommelier friend who that's his favorite place in Surrey. So I know that their wine list is terrific. And they're very reasonably priced, and yeah, he's great. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. See what I mean? Andrea's enthusiasm for food, and more than that, for the human experiences food brings, is absolutely infectious. I was delighted to hear about her experiences when she took some time away from law, especially about Andrea's time in Italy. I really appreciate Andrea taking time out of her more than busy schedule to talk to me. My only real concern is that I have not yet attended a dinner party with Andrea, so if our mutual friend Carolyn is listening to this episode, Carolyn, make it happen. After coffee with Andrea at Bosa Foods, I went on my own to Vancouver's Platform 7 Coffee to do some editing work and to have some more coffee. And later the same day, I went to Nemesis Coffee in Gastown for, you guessed it, a cup of coffee. And for a chat with my friend and the chef partner at Nemesis, Jacob Deacon Evans. So I'm the chef partner of Nemesis Coffee. We are a cafe located in Victory Square, next to Victory Square in Gastown. Vancouver. We're a specialty coffee shop. And we're going to come back to some of the specifics around Nemesis, but let's move way back. Tell the listeners, if you would, when and where you first started cooking. And I, I imagine there might be a, a family connection because your uh, your brother's a chef as well. There's no family connection. Both of my parents are academics, or at least my mom's a homeopath. My dad, for years, worked for Amnesty International and since helped governments and whatnot develop their human rights policies. But yeah, me and my brother are both cooks, and my sister, for years, has worked in restaurants. We joke about it a lot, and I'm not sure, none of us are really sure how that quite happened, but my mom loves food. And we grew up going to farmer's markets, and going to food swaps, and there was always potlucks, and there was always a plethora of cookbooks at home. Where was your professional start? So professionally, I started as a dishwasher in a small bistro in Naramata, which is in the, uh, in the Okanagan, the wine capital of BC. So there was two restaurants. There was a Chinese restaurant, a sort of bistro-y type restaurant. And I started as a dishwasher when I was 15 or 16. Jacob has both an early start in the industry and a deep interest in the history of cooking. I asked him about a book he'd lent me years ago about a 19th century chef, Alexis Sawyer or Alexis Soyer. And when you and I were together at Bishop's back in the day, you shared a book about one of your inspirations, Alexis Sawyer. Can you talk to the listeners about that? What the history of the culinary craft is for you, means for you, and how you uh, dive into it, how you learn about it? Sure. That was the most interesting question that I thought you had, and the, har- <laughs> the hardest one I'm going to find to answer. Okay. So Lysa Soye, I just think, is a fantastic character. He was a celebrity chef in the Victorian era, left post-revolution France, and made his name in London. He became incredibly wealthy and incredibly and broke multiple times throughout his life. He was part of high society, but married a dancing hall lady changed the way that the army was fed to it being based on nutrition, which was not a thought. You would feed the men powdered potatoes and meat, because that's what men need to be men 
and he actually realized that because they all had scurvy, we should probably change that. Yeah, he's just a fascinating dude. Up until recently, a lot of kitchen equipment that we still use was invented by him, or at least prototypes were invented by him. He arguably had the first commercial fridge in a kitchen, you know? He invented the word zigzag. His style was a la zigzoo. He had his chef jacket, he would cut it from button to button. Uh, and he, yeah, he's just a fascinating dude. And I think in a lot of anthropological studies, we don't pay enough attention to food and how important food is. I don't think there's very many things that can speak to a culture, time, and place, and people's everyday lives as food, because it's something that we do hopefully three times a day. Food is incredibly powerful because of that, and few things have changed the world like food. I find the characters behind food to be fascinating. Food and how it's consumed and who prepares it can be quite a revolutionary thing. And I think Alexis Soye was a very revolutionary figure for his time. Because his time was when you were taking, there was no restaurants, there was no cafes. These things were just coming into being. If you didn't cook it at home, you went to maybe a slop house or a soup house or a pie shop. It was all fast food. And they might do one or two things. You get a meat pie or a fish pie. You could get the stew of the day, whatever that was at your pub. The idea of having somebody cook for you and wait on you and serve you was an absolutely revolutionary idea because you were taking that away from the aristocracy who were the only people who had that. And for a price, you could be aristocracy for a night. You could be a king for a day. So what he did at the Reform Club, which was in itself, so he was, he was at a private club, but this private club, you didn't have to be gentry to, to join. It was purely financial, so you had to be rich, but you could be new money. You could be crass. And then he added on to that with like the, most of his successful cookbooks were for people who had to spend farthing cookery, so like how to budget cookery for the people. And so I think he was an incredibly revolutionary person. And taking that luxury from that class, maybe to everyone else. How do you find, this is a question I've been asking of both chefs and lawyers, what are your impressions of the younger generation of cooks coming up these days? What's the level of interest in the history of food? It's very different. I think I came into cooking right on the wave of when the Food Network was really starting to get sexy, before it went into home cooking. And I think I entered cooking just at the start of when cooking became a cool thing to do. This industry, most people drop out. It's hard on your body, it's hard on your social life, it's hard on, if you don't commit to it 100%, then there's much easier ways of making money. But this young generation, the cycle of what's cool has moved on. I think it's it's cool to be a barista, you know? So people who are who are cooks now are choosing to be cooks, right. which is interesting. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, that's a, that actually sounds encouraging to me because if you're committing to it now, you're putting in the 12-hour days for a reason beyond the Food Network and, and posting photos on, on social media. Yeah, so when, when I first started, the old guys that I was working with were old-school cooks who were people who fell into it and didn't have very good education. Probably lived a hard lifestyle. You could go to the army, be a garbage man, you could be a cook. Like, it was kind of that level. And there was a lot of drinking, and a lot of swearing, and a lot of sexism, and a lot of, it was a very working class. It was a heavy industry. And then you had that flood of 
young people who thought it was sexy and thought it was cool. Eventually you realize that it's actually a lot of work. <laughs> and the newer generation is people who are choosing to do it, which means there's a lot less cooks. Right, right. Sort of, almost at crisis proportions now. Yeah, absolutely. But those who are, are generally higher educated, a lot of people will go to college and then become a cook. I find it a lot more civilized now, which is good and bad. But at the same time, it's great that people, I think it's great that people are challenging the industry in that way. It's going to be a knock-on effect of can the industry supply a living wage and decent working hours and, you know, treating people like humans, which they should. I think that there's a romanticism to the long hours and to the sharp knives and the burning yourself and the suffering for your art or whatever. And there's, it, it seems to me in both industries that I've worked in, law and cooking, it, some people wear that like a, like a badge of honor. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I went through it, so you're going to go through yeah. it. Yeah. And I think both industries are changing. I went through it and I enjoyed it because, I don't know, I'm slightly masochistic at it. There was something romantic about that. There was right. something... Right. Well, you, you would have been cooking at home after your shift anyway, so you might as well stay at the restaurant and do a little more cooking. Right. right. <laughs> no, it was cool. There was a camaraderie. It was beautiful. I don't find that as much anymore. I don't find that camaraderie quite to that level anymore, but I don't think it's fair to... I've always hated that I went through it, so you have to. I enjoyed it, but that was my choice, sort of. Jacob's cooked primarily in Vancouver, but also in England, where he spent a good part of his childhood. I asked him to talk about some of the highlights from his career prior to his current role at Nemesis Coffee. Highlights working at Giappino's. He was wonderful, super hard at times, but a really wonderful teacher. West was probably the most talented kitchen team I've ever worked with. When you talk about camaraderie, I, I love that team. England. I originally went to England to work for Gordon Ramsay, then decided not to. And my wife was serving at a restaurant. We went for dinner and I loved it. And then their sous chef left the next day. And so I took over as sous chef there. And then the chef had an emergency, a family emergency and had to resign and move back to Sweden. And so I took over and I was 24. It was a tiny restaurant. Was that Ultra PA? No, that was that was uh, called the Ambassador. Okay. And so we were there for about a year. My wife was she ran the day we had just opened, and we won a bunch of awards. And we worked 16 hours a day, and it was great. I loved it. But I I was 24 and I wanted to learn more, so I heard of an exciting restaurant opening up called Ultra PA, which was the sister restaurant, going to be the sister restaurant to a very iconic London restaurant called Piedater. So I joined the team there and that was, again, it was really hard. It was at least 16 hours a day. I remember one day on my way to work, six in the morning or whatever, it was snowing and went into the tunnel by the tube. There was a homeless dude who was like wrapped up in all these blankets and I was really, really envious of him. Just beyond tired. But we got our first Michelin star in, our first, in the first year and we won Best New Restaurant and I learned a lot about pastry. I'm not a trained pastry chef and they run the pastry side of things. And it was a hell of a lot of fun and it was a hell of a lot of work. After our talk about England and his experiences there, Jacob and I talked about a Vancouver kitchen we both know well, Bishop's Restaurant. 
Jacob said that he had wanted to work at the restaurant for 10 years before he got the job, and he explained why he loved working with Chef Andrea Carlson and why it was both a rewarding but a very challenging experience. John Bishop is wonderful. The team there was wonderful. Thoroughly enjoyed my time. But Andrea Carlson was amazing and the most intellectually challenging chef that I've ever worked for because I have no idea what she's thinking. Absolutely no idea. Every chef I've worked for, every single chef, even as an apprentice, I can tell you what their formula is. I can tell you how they come up with dishes. And I have no idea, even as her sous chef who's supposed to, you know, run the kitchen when she's away and all that kind of I had no idea where she was day to day. And that was wonderful. I never felt like I could get in a rhythm, which meant that it never felt stale. Right. So did that create an environment where you learned more or where you were just you know, sort of constantly on your toes? Yeah, I was in a constant state of confusion. <laughs> okay. But in a good way. Right. And it was also, I was coming from London and West, and West was run by a dude from London of the very old school. So I was also coming from very aggressive, macho uh, kitchens, and I was then landing in Bishop's, which is very civilized. <laughs> and so that was a culture shock. And working for Andrea, who is incredibly calm, and I never feared for my life while working. <laughs> Well, the bishops and people say thank you, and it was very bizarre. And so I'm, I'm very thankful for bishops for kind of like, I found bishops incredibly confusing on many levels. I found working with Andrea incredibly confusing on many levels, but I feel like it put me back on track. I felt like I kind of found myself a little bit more at bishops than I had anywhere else. And meeting the farmers, meeting the foragers, cemented more where I wanted the focus of my food to be. When I was going to get the chance, I wanted, I like telling stories. It's the history stuff, I like stories. And I think with food, it's like telling a story, but it's building layers. And some of the layers you don't appreciate, a lot of the layers you don't see. But the more layers that you build into something, the better it is. And we tell the story of our time, our place, the people who made it, the people who grew it. The truer that story, the more genuine that story, the more engaged every person was along the lines, the better that dish is going to taste. And was that something that you sort of came into more fully through the Bishop's experience? Absolutely. That was something that Andrea helped solidify. I was also coming from pretty classical Italian, and then pretty classical French, and then modern European, which is basically French. I was coming from that to Andrea, who doesn't fall into any of those categories, and I think is a great representation for where she is because of that. I mean, Vancouver doesn't have one cultural identity. So absolutely, there's no problem doing having a ramen and a bao and a cacovin on your menu. Like, that is not a contradiction in Vancouver. I think that represents Vancouver. But as somebody who's coming from, this is what fine dining is, when you're making a super rustic Italian pasta and a Spanish lamb braise and, yeah, an octopus in a mono, you're like, what are we? What is this that we're doing? You know, but it worked. 
also confusing but fun and growth. Yeah, and challenging, confusing in a good way. It was right. incredibly challenging, especially trying to come up with features and stuff that uh, would fit within her <laughs> philosophy. Because you're like, <laughs> Jacob is literally tearing at his hair right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, should I do takoyaki or should I do a foisterine? Like, don't do the foisterine. All right. Well, let's move to present day, and because now you're in charge of the kitchen, and tell the listeners what you're doing at Nemesis. What is the food program here? What can people expect when they come in? I didn't plan on becoming a chef. I thought I was going to be a teacher. And I kept cooking, being like, hey, I'm going to go to school when I'm ready, or whatever. And it didn't strike me until I was in my mid-20s, or early 20s, that I was like, hey, this thing that I've been doing for five or six years, this could be a career. Yeah. I like doing this. Can I keep doing this? Yeah. I wanted to open a bistro or a cafe. I love cafes. I really like coffee, but I really love cafes. I love roadside Vietnamese cafes. I love fancy Parisian cafes with chandeliers and gold and caviar. I get little caviar sandwiches. I love those cafes. I love English greasy spoon cafes. I love American diners. I love the cafe world. North Africa, sipping really strong coffee and eating incredibly sweet sweets. From a food aspect, I love that. I love simple, flavorful, fun cafe food. How the cafe has been interpreted. Cafes are older than restaurants. They have taken the place of pubs and ale houses and drinking spots in a lot of a lot of cultures and their meeting spots. They're places that you could do business, they're places that you seek solitude, they're places that you meet up with friends. They I think that a cafe is very much the social glue of a community like a pub or a bar used to be. You know, you don't go into pubs with your kids anymore. You go to a cafe, get a cookie and a coffee. You don't do work in a pub, you know? You don't drink copious pints and like, if it's a date that actually means something, maybe you're gonna meet up for a sober, a sobering drink rather than a, you know. So yeah, I, I think that cafes are are wonderful things and they're where I spend my days off. So with all of those oh, influences, right. yeah, all of those influences, how do you describe the menu here? <laughs> Uh, or do you? So what I wanted to do here, we are a multi-roaster, which means that we carry lots of beans from different roasters, and we try and work with, or we do work with a lot of the best roasters in the world. We're not locally based that way. The coffee is treated, we have the best machines that we can get, we have award-winning baristas, it's all done very well. But there's no shortage of really great cafes in Vancouver, or coffee shops in Vancouver and then you'll get a microwave burrito. That has never made sense to me. So we try and design food which is going to accentuate the coffee and vice versa. And while the coffee is super precise, and super clean, and super scientifically extracted and from all over the world, we try and take the exact opposite approach with the food. There are crossovers. The basic rule in the kitchen is that we want to know everyone on a first-name basis who produces something that we're going to serve. It's not always achievable, but that's the goal. We're cooking seasonally, we're using seasonal coffee beans, which was a new concept to me. Like, every coffee region has its season, right? Makes sense. It's, it, it's a very new concept to me within the last 10 seconds or so. Yeah, right? Yeah. Obviously, but yeah. It, you know, 
green beans only stay green for so long, right? Right. So we've just gone through Africa and we're starting to go into South America. It starts with what the farmers tell us is available and then we interpret it through one of those cafe cultures. So right now we've got some North African dishes, we've got some Sicilian dishes, we've got some... It's a really open concept which lends itself to a lot of things. And we have an amazing pastry chef who heads up the baking program and he's been doing some really amazing stuff. So mostly based around sort of classical French cafe pastries, but uh, developing upon those as well. So approaching my final question, and I'm gonna ask you for some recommendations, but on, on you know places you might like to go, but before doing that, I want to tie it to a menu item here at Nemesis, which is called simply Nut Butter, but described as Frankie's blend of hazelnuts, cashews, and almonds. And I think I'm right that the Frankie in the menu reference is your daughter Frances, better, better known as Frankie. So, and she's, you were just telling me before we turned the recorder on, that she is three and a half. So where does a chef go for dinner, lunch, breakfast, wherever, pick your meal, but where do you go when you've got a busy, active toddler with you? Our toddler? Yes. <laughs> I'm assuming you're going out for dinner with no, your No, 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 but, but our toddler oh, would yeah, go anywhere. Oh, okay. Because she's, she's pretty mellow, as you were saying. She's pretty mellow. She really likes food. Yeah. We were at Farmer's Apprentice a couple nights ago. We bring pajamas with us, you know? I don't go out nearly as much as I used to. I have found that everywhere we go has been super accommodating. And I like it when people bring kids to the cafe. We used to go to uh, the Nest on Commercial, Little Nest, which unfortunately closed. But I think as a parent, I want to open my, my kids' eyes to as many things as possible. Food's important to me. I take her where I want to go. I wouldn't take her to Bishop's, and I wouldn't take her to West, and I wouldn't take her to High's. There are places which are designed for older people. I think as a parent, it's your job to open your kids' eyes to lots of different things. My wife and I have places that we like to go as adults, but I'll take Frankie everywhere. Okay, last question. I don't know if you've thought about this one at all. Any particular book that uh, you would recommend people read? Oh, Third Plate. Uh, the Third Plate by Dan Barber. That came out last year, the year before that. I actually read it and listened to the audiobook, which he read, which was great. He's a chef in New York. He's very locally driven. He's almost non-idealistic about it. We want to support our local economy and our local food sovereignty, and we don't want to encourage slave labor in, third, in other countries. <laughs> Here's a practical way to do it. Yeah. Anyways, he's great. The book is amazing. Third plate, highly recommend it. Very interesting. Jacob, who's a voracious reader on food and cooking, recommends a book by Dan Barber, the New York chef behind the seed company Row 7 that Andrea Carlson from Burdock & Co. mentioned on the first episode of Cheftimony. Thanks to Jacob for spending so much time with me, even after Frankie showed up and was clearly keen for her dad's attention. It was wonderful to catch up with you, my friend, to see the great stuff that you're doing at Nemesis and to work my way through that fantastic plate of shakshuka that you brought me at the end of our interview. And thanks to all of you for joining me here for episode number three. Remember to connect with Cheftimony on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've got a question for me or a suggestion for an interview, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that's all for now. I'm Graham McLennan, and I hope to see you here next time on Cheftimony. <laughs>